0: This is David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers, Episode 4, Trainspotting, Part 1. Every art form is made up of different genres. Uh, Cinema genres include film noir, anime, mumblecore, and many others. In painting, you have cubism, impressionism, pop art, and of course, these categories can overlap uh, or split into further subcategories. Jazz is one genre of music, but think of how many types of jazz there are. There's New Orleans style, swing, bop, fusion, and so on. Tabletop is no different. Often we define genres in tabletop by the game's theme or setting. Fantasy, science fiction, medieval trade. That last one's a biggie. But another way of mapping the territory is by the main mechanic or mechanics. In Tabletop, a mechanic defines how players interact with each other and the game. In Monopoly, for instance, players roll dice to move around the board. Unsurprisingly, that's called a roll and move mechanic. And in Monopoly, players trade properties with each other, which, also not surprisingly, is called a trading mechanic. Other often used mechanics in Tabletop are tie-laying, like in Carcassonne worker placement, like Agricola, Area Control, El Grande, Role Selection, Citadels, Deck Building, Dominion, and so on. In general, these ways of slicing the tabletop pie can be mixed and matched any which way. There is, for instance, a space-themed game where dice are used for worker placement, Alien Frontiers. There's a solitaire tactical World War II card game fields of fire. There's a board game set in the official world of Dungeons & Dragons which uses worker placement, pick up and deliver, and hidden roles for end game bonus points. That's Lords of Waterdeep. But there's one genre that today tends to be defined not just by its theme but also by its main mechanics, specifically tile laying and stock ownership. That genre is train games. The earliest recorded game incorporating a railroad was published in 1846. A simple race game, but railroad-themed nonetheless. After that, things are pretty thin on the ground, train-wise. In fact, until the 1970s, I couldn't even say that train games were a genre at all by themselves. They were pretty well race games, no different than Candyland. But one exception was Fast Freight published somewhere in the usa in 1948 and the only copy is currently on display at the san luis obispo railroad museum in california the copy is falling to pieces and many of its parts have been replaced over the years but the rules survive and they involve buying up routes and shipping goods which is definitely a departure from the racing genre and makes fast freight an obscure ancestor of the train game genre i'd love to know more about fast freight But it is the United Kingdom, the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution and steam-powered rail travel, that the two games that would come to epitomize the train game genre were both designed in the early 1970s. One by a Welshman, the other by an Englishman. The origins of the first game are in Milford Haven, Wales. In 1973, its grammar school geography teacher, David Watts, was looking for a more engaging way to teach about the history and purpose of railroads. Music history sidebar, this David Watts was not the inspiration for the 1967 Kinks classic B-side David Watts, which was later covered by the jam in 1978, in case any of you were wondering. Well, I wondered. Anyway. Watts came up with a game he called Railway Rivals, played on a hex grid map of his local area. The map had mountains, forests, rivers, and coastlines, but no way to travel around. It was up to the players to build tracks by drawing on the map. Building track cost money, more if you were bridging over a river or going over a mountain. You earned more money by competing in races between build rounds. The starting and ending points of the races were randomly picked each time. The more efficient your rail net was, the more money you made. You could also rent out stretches of track to another player, or from another player. So, if you rented from another player, you would win the race but you'd also be helping an opponent out a little bit as well. To Watts' surprise, the game also took off among non-students, becoming a popular postal play choice among anoraks, and Watts continued to develop the game until it caught the attention of German publisher Bütterhorns Spiele in 1979. They renamed it Dampfros, which means Steam Horse. And it proved a big hit in Germany as well, picking up the Spiel des Jahres Game of the Year award in 1984. Of course, some players found Dampfrost too simplistic. I mean, trains didn't just race around for no reason, they carried passengers and freight. A proper train game should be about picking up and delivering passengers and cargo. And all this drawing on paper was wasteful. Boards should be mounted and laminated, and players should use crayons to draw their roots. That way, all you had to do was wipe down the board and it was ready for the next game. So, before you could say Casey Jones, two of these fans, Darwin Bromley and Bill Fawcett, had invented Empire Builder and sold it to Mayfair Games in 1980. You remember Mayfair, right? They're the ones who put out the ill-fated SimCity card game, which was partly designed by Bromley, and then hit it big with Catan. But all that was in Mayfair's future. Right now, Mayfair's thing became train games. British rails, Euro rails, Nippon rails, North American rails, Australian rails, all using the same template as Empire Builder. The fact that they kept making them and kept selling them, shows that there was a ready market of people who loved playing them and were willing to keep shelling out for more. The other foundational game of the train genre was invented in 1974 by Francis Tresham, a game called 1829. And it was 1829 that ended up becoming the main bloodline of the train game genre. Francis Tresham is truly one of the geniuses of the pre-modern tabletop era and deserves to be better known. You'd think there'd be some biographic material I could turn to to tell Tresham's story, especially how he came up with the ideas for his games, but sadly this doesn't seem to be so. There's much more information available about the other Francis Tresham. You know, the Catholic conspirator who was part of the infamous gunpowder plot of 1605 which planned to assassinate King James I. I don't even know whether that conspirator was the ancestor of the game designer. Although, Tresham isn't exactly a common name, so chances are pretty good. The main source, and longest interview I could find, about Tresham was from 2018, a year before Tresham's death at the age of 86. In the interview, he says that he fell into games by accident as a child because his father could beat him at all the regular games. So Tresham invented new ones his father had never seen before. This way, he would have at least a chance to win once in a while. Clearly, the young Tresham was a competitive lad. As a young man, he trained as an engineer and went to work for a local bus company. He married, settled down, and led the life of a middle-class white-collar worker. Part of that lifestyle was having other married couples over for dinner and parlor games. One day in 1974, he was preparing for one such gathering that he was to host. He had half-finished a homemade game about the Tales of the Arabian Nights for that evening, a game for which he had made up black-and-white hexagonal tiles but he suddenly realized that none of the people who were at the party, including himself, knew very much about the Arabian Nights. On the other hand, one of his guests was a train spotter, that's a British railroad fan, and another actually worked for British Railways. So Tresham decided to throw out the Arabian Nights idea and instead make a game about trains, using those hex tiles along with other bits he cannibalized from his copy of Monopoly and some stock share certificates he took from a long, obsolete game called Marketeers. Tresham was very modest about coming up with the game's main mechanics. He said it was all quite obvious, really. And besides, he only had six hours to throw the game together. It more or less developed itself. That night, he and his friends had a blast and immediately realized the potential of the game and he claimed that there were very few changes he needed to make after that to get the published version done. For a while, the game had no name, it was just the train game, but eventually he chose the year of the first public railway founding in Great Britain. And so his game was christened 1829. In 1829, players took the role of railroad magnates at the dawn of the steam age in Great Britain. But instead of drawing on the map, like in Railway Rivals, they used the hex tiles to lay track routes across the country. As the game went on, more and more complex track connections and crossings became available. It was the addition of a stock market and the incorporation of technological upgrades which made 1829 a landmark game. Instead of each player representing the owner of one specific company, players bought and sold shares in various companies, and the majority shareholder in each company was the one in charge of laying track and delivering goods for that railroad. Technological advances were introduced in various ways by various games in the genre, but the gist was that as the game went on, upgrades could be purchased to make trains travel further, more frequently, carry more goods, or other things. This was a long way from simply buying track and racing around the Welsh countryside. Players now had to keep their eye on their in-game stock portfolios, as well as racing to claim the most advantageous and efficient terrain for their rail lines and making sure that they were keeping their rail stock from going obsolete. So, although Empire Builder and its successors have a following even today, 1829 is generally considered to have established the train game genre that came to be known as 18xx, because of Tresham's naming scheme. There's no question that 1829 was a game-changer of the pre-modern era. But it was just too ahead of its time. Tresham was never able to interest anyone in publishing it, and ended up having to start his own company, Heartland Trefoil Limited, to sell it. And so 1829 never achieved mass-market success. However, it did find a ready audience in train spotters. Not just in the UK, but in North America and around the world as well. In fact, its sequel, 1830 Robbers and Rail Barons, released in 1982 by Avalon Hill and set in the eastern US, made 18xx even more influential. This was not only due to Avalon Hill's already high profile in the hobby game industry, allowing the game much wider distribution than Tresham could manage on his own, but also because it was one of the first board games successfully ported to the then new world of personal computers. And yet, Tresham wasn't finished transforming the hobby. After founding the 18xx genre with 1829, he went on to establish another genre a few years later with a game called Civilization. An epic game set in the ancient Near East where players took charge of tiny tribal groups and brought them to greatness. It was the first game to use what has come to be called a technology tree. The genre that Civilization set the template for is called 4X because players explore territory expand their empires, exploit resources, and exterminate rivals. 4X gameplay continues to thrive today in both the tabletop and video game worlds, not least through the work of Sid Meier and Microprose, who were specifically inspired by Tresham's game to create their own massively successful Civilization video game franchise, currently in its sixth edition and still going strong after 30 years. Francis Tresham was like the painter El Greco. He saw things in a fundamentally different way, which was obvious to him, but opaque to all but a few of his contemporaries. Ahead of his time, he didn't fit into any one or approach, but worked intuitively. Only with the passage of time as tastes matured and the art form caught up was Tresham, like El Greco, seen and appreciated for the genius that he was. In the years to come, the descendants of railway rivals in 1829 would attract a hardcore audience of train spotters, but kind of off to the side compared to what was happening in the rest of the tabletop world. Their games were too esoteric and too difficult to attract a wider audience. But that would all change in 2004 when an American designer with a train fixation who had toiled away in relative obscurity for 25 years figured out a way to turn this niche genre into a mass market phenomenon. And I'll tell you how it all happened in part two. That was part one of episode four of the Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for the Daily Worker Placement. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And don't flip that table